Section 9 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. From Chambéry to Milan. Your truly sentimental tourist will never take it from any occasion that there is absolutely nothing for him. And it was at Chambéry, but four hours from Geneva, that I accepted the situation and decided there might be be mysterious delights in entering Italy by a whiz through an eight-mile tunnel, even as a bullet through the bore of a gun. I found my reward in the Savoyard landscape, which greets you betimes with the smile of anticipation. If it is not so Italian as Italy, it is at least more Italian than anything but Italy. More Italian, too, I should think, than can seem natural and proper to the swarming red-legged soldiery who so publicly proclaim it to be of the empire of Monsieur Thiers. The light and the complexion of things had to my eyes not a little of that mollified depth last loved by them rather further on. It was simply, perhaps, that the weather was hot and the mountains drowsing in that iridescent haze that I've seen nearer home than Chambéry. But the vegetation, assuredly, had all but transalpine twist and curl, and the classic wayside tangle of corn and vines left nothing to be desired in the line of careless grace. Chambéry as a town, however, constitutes no foretaste of the monumental cities. There is shabbiness and shabbiness, the fond critic of such things will tell you, and that of the ancient capital of Savoy lacks style. I found a better pastime, however, than strolling through the dark, dull streets in quest of effects that were not forthcoming. The first urchin you meet will show you the way to Les Chamettes and Maison Jean-Jacques. A very pleasant way it becomes as soon as it leaves the town. A winding, climbing by-road, bordered with such tall and sturdy hedge as to give it the air of an English lane. If you can fancy an English lane, introducing you to the haunts of a Madame de Varenne. The house that formerly sheltered this lady's singular menage stands on a hillside above the road, which a rapid path connects with a little grass-grown terrace before it. It is a small, shabby, homely dwelling, with a certain reputable solidity, however, and more of internal spaciousness than of outside promise. The place is shown by an elderly, competent dame, who points out the very few surviving objects, which you may touch with the reflection, complacent in whatsoever degree suits you, that they have known the familiarity of Rousseau's hand. It was presumably a meagerly appointed house, and I wondered that on such scanty features so much expression should linger. But the structure has an ancient ponderosity, and the dust of the 18th century seems to lie on its worm-eaten floors, to cling to the faded old papier arrimage on the walls, and to lodge in the crevices of the brown wooden ceilings. Madame de Varennes's bed remains, 
with the narrow couch of Jean-Jacques as well, his little warped and cracked yellow spinet, and a battered turnip-shaped silver timepiece engraved with its master's name. Its primitive tick as extinct as his passionate heartbeats. It cost me, I confess, a somewhat pitying acceleration of my own to see this intimately personal relic of the Ganius Loki, for it had dwelt in his waistcoat pocket, than which there is hardly a material point in space nearer to a man's consciousness, tossed so irreverently upon the table on which you deposit your fee, beside the dog-eared visitor's record or the livre de cuisine recently denounced by Madame Chaussonde. In fact, the place generally, in so far as some faint ghostly presence of its famous inmate seems to linger there, is by no means exhilarating. Gopé and Fernet tell, if not of pure happiness, at least of prosperity and honour, wealth and success. But Les Charmettes is haunted by ghosts unclean and forlorn. The place tells of poverty, perversity, distress. A good deal of clever modern talent in France has been employed in touching up the episode of which it was the scene and tricking it out in idyllic love-knots. But as I stood on the charming terrace I have mentioned, a little jewel of a terrace with grassy flags and a mossy parapet, and an admirable view of great swelling violet hills, stood there, reminded how much sweeter nature is than man. The story looked rather wan and unlovely beneath these literary decorations, and I could pay it no livelier homage than is implied in perfect pity. Hero and heroine had become too much creatures of history to take up attitudes as part of any poetry, but not to moralise too sternly for a tourist between trains. I should add that, as an illustration to be inserted mentally in the text of the Confessions, a glimpse of Les Chamettes is pleasant enough. It completes the rare charm of good autobiography to behold with one's eyes the faded and battered background of the story, and Rousseau's narrative is so incomparably vivid and forcible that the sordid little house of Chambray seems of a hardly deeper shade of reality than so many other passages of his projected truth. If I spent an hour at Les Chamettes, fumbling thus helplessly with the past, I recognised on the morrow how strongly the Montseny tunnel smells of the time to come. As I passed along the Saint-Gothard Highway a couple of months since, I perceived halfway up the Swiss ascent a group of navvies at work in a gorge beneath the road. They had laid bare a broad surface of granite and had punched in the centre of it a round black cavity of about the dimensions, as it seemed to me, of a soup plate. This was to attain its perfect development some eight years hence. The Montseigneur may therefore be held to have set a fashion, which will be followed till the highest Himalaya is but the ornamental apex or snow-capped gable-tip of some resounding fuliginous corridor.
The tunnel differs but in length from other tunnels. You spend half an hour in it, but you whirl out into the blessed peninsula, and as you look back, seem to see the mighty mass shrug its shoulders over the line, the mere turn of a dreaming giant in his sleep. The tunnel is certainly not a poetic object, but there is no perfection without its beauty, and as you measure the long rugged outline of the pyramid of which it forms the base, you accept it as the perfection of a shortcut. Twenty-four hours from Paris to Turin, it's speed for the times, speed which may content us at any rate until expanse of Berlin has succeeded in placing itself at 36 from Milan. To enter Turin then of a lovely August afternoon was to find a city of arcades, of pink and yellow stucco, of innumerable cafes, of blue-legged offices, of ladies draped in the North Italian mantilla. An old friend of Italy coming back to her finds an easy waking for dormant memories. Every object is a reminder, and every reminder a thrill. Half an hour after my arrival, as I stood at my window which overhung the great square, I found the scene within and without a rough epitome of every pleasure and every impression I had formerly gathered from Italy. The balcony and the Venetian blind, the cool floor of speckled concrete, the lavish delusions of frescoed wall and ceiling, the broad divan framed for the noonday siesta, the mass of medieval castello in mid-piazza, with its shabby rear and its pompous palladian front, the brick campaniles beyond, the milder yellower light, the range of colour, the suggestion of sound. Later, beneath the arcades, I found many an old acquaintance, beautiful officers, resplendent, slow-strolling, contemplative of female beauty. Civil and peaceful dandies, hardly less gorgeous, with that religious faith in moustache and shirt-front which distinguishes the Belgianese of Italy. Ladies, with heads artfully shawled in Spanish-looking lace, but with too little art, or too much nature, at least, in the region of the bodice. Well-conditioned young abati, with neatly drawn stockings. These indeed are not objects of first-rate interest, and with such Turin is rather meagrely furnished. It has no architecture, no churches, no monuments, no romantic street scenery. It has the great votive temple of the Superga, which stands on a high hilltop above the city, gazing across at Monte Rosa and lifting its own fine dome against the sky with no contemptible art. But when you have seen the Superga from the quay beside the Po, has gained of a few yellow threads in August, despite its frequent habit of rising high and running wild, and said to herself that in architecture, position is half the battle. You have nothing left to visit but the Museum of Pictures. The Turin Gallery, which is large and well arranged, is the fortunate owner of three or four masterpieces. A couple of magnificent Van Dykes and a couple of Paul Veroneses. 
the latter a queen of Sheba and a feast of the house of Levi. The usual splendid combination of brocades, grandees and marble colonnades dividing those skies de turquoise malade to which Théophile Gautier is fond of alluding. The Veronaises are fine, but with Venice in prospect, the traveller feels at liberty to keep his best attention in reserve. If, however, he has the proper relish for Van Dyck, let him linger long and fondly here, for that admiration will never be more potently stirred than by the adorable group of the three little royal highnesses, sons and the daughter of Charles I. All the purity of childhood is here, and all its soft solidity of structure rounded tenderly beneath the spangled satin and contrasted charmingly with the pompous rigidity. Clad respectively in crimson, white and blue, these small scions stand up in their ruffs and farrandales in dimpled serenity, squaring their infantine stomachers at the spectator with an innocence, a dignity, a delightful grotesqueness, which make the picture a thing of close truth as well as of fine decorum. You might kiss their hands, but you certainly would think twice before pinching their cheeks, provocative as they are of this tribute of admiration, and would altogether lack presumption to lift them off the ground or the higher level of dais on which they stand so sturdily planted by right of birth. There is something inimitable in the paternal gallantry with which the painter has touched off the young lady. She was a princess, yet she was a baby, and he has contrived, we let ourselves fancy, to interweave an intimation that she was a creature whom in her teens the lucklessly smitten, even as he was prematurely, must vainly sigh for. Though the work is a masterpiece of execution, its merits under this head may be emulated at a distance. The lovely modulations of colour in the three contrasted and harmonised little satin petticoats, the solidity of the little heads, in spite of their prettiness, the happy unexaggerated squareness and maturity of pose, are severally points to study, to imitate, and to reproduce with profit. But the taste of such a consummate thing is its great secret, as well as its great merit, a taste which seems one of the lost instincts of mankind. Go and enjoy this supreme expression of Van Dyck's fine sense, and admit that never was a politer production. Milan speaks to us of a burden of felt life of which Turin is innocent, but in its general aspect still lingers a northern reserve, which makes the place rather perhaps the last of the prose capitals than the first of the poetic. The long Austrian occupation perhaps did something to Germanize its physiognomy, though indeed this is an indifferent explanation when one remembers how well, temperamentally speaking, Italy held her own in Venetia. Milan, at any rate, if not bristling with the aesthetic impulse, opens to us, frankly enough, the thick volume of her past. 
of that volume the cathedral is the fairest and fullest page a structure not supremely interesting not logical not even to some minds commandingly beautiful but grandly curious and superbly rich i hope for my own part never to grow too particular to admire it if it had no other distinction it would still have that of impressive immeasurable achievement as i strolled beside its vast indented base one evening and felt it above me rear its grey mysteries into the starlight while the restless human tide on which i floated rose no higher than the first few layers of street soiled marble i was tempted to believe that beauty in great architecture is almost a secondary merit and that the main point is mass such mass as may make it a supreme embodiment of vigorous effort viewed in this way a great building is the greatest conceivable work of art more than any other it represents difficulties mastered resources combined labour courage and patience and there are people who tell us that art has nothing to do with morality little enough doubtless when it is concerned even ever so little in painting the roof of milan cathedral within to represent carved stonework of this famous roof everyone has heard how good it is how bad how perfect a delusion how transparent an artifice it is the first thing your cicerone shows you on entering the church the occasionally accommodating art lover may accept it philosophically i think for the interior though admirably effective as a whole has no great sublimity nor even purity of pitch it is splendidly vast and dim altar lamps twinkle afar through the incensed thickened air like fog lights at sea and the great columns rise straight to the roof which hardly curves to meet them with the girth and altitude of oaks of a thousand years but there is little refinement of design few of those felicities of proportion which the eye caresses when it finds them very much as the memory retains and repeats some happy lines of poetry or some haunting musical phrase consistently brave nonetheless is the result produced and nothing braver than a certain exhibition that i privately enjoyed of the relics of st charles borromeus this holy man lies at his eternal rest in a small but gorgeous sepulchral chapel beneath the boundless pavement and before the high altar and for the modest sum of five francs you may have his shrivelled mortality unveiled and gaze at it with whatever reserves occur to you the catholic church never renounces a chance of the sublime for fear of a chance of the ridiculous especially when the chance of the sublime may be the very excellent chance of five francs the performance in question of which the good san carlo paid in the first instance the cost was impressive certainly but as a monstrous matter or a grim comedy may still be the little sacristan having secured his audience whipped on a white tunic over his frock 
lighted a couple of extra candles, and proceeded to remove from above the altar, by means of a crank, a sort of sliding shutter, just as you may see a shop-boy do of a morning at his master's window. In this case, too, a large sheet of plate glass was uncovered, and to form an idea of the étalage, you must imagine that a jeweller, for reasons of his own, has struck up an unnatural partnership with an undertaker. The black mummified corpse of the saint is stretched out in a glass coffin, clad in his mouldering canonicals, mitred, croziered and gloved, glittering with votive jewels. It is an extraordinary mixture of death and life. The desiccated clay, the ashen rags, the hideous little black mask and skull, and the living, glowing, twinkling splendour of diamonds, emeralds and sapphires. The collection is really fine, and many great historic names are attached to the different offerings. Whatever may be the better opinion as to the future of the church, I can't help thinking she will make a figure in the world as long as she retains this great fund of precious properties, this prodigious capital, decoratively invested and scintillating throughout Christendom at effectively scattered points. You see, I am forced to agree after all, in spite of the sliding shutter and the profane swagger of the sacristan, that a certain pastoral majesty saved the situation, or at least made irony gape. Yet it was from a natural desire to breathe a sweeter air that I immediately afterwards undertook the interminable climb to the roof of the cathedral. This is another world of wonders, and one which enjoys due renown. Every square inch of wall on the winding stairways being bescribbled with a traveller's name. There is the great glare from the far-stretching slopes of marble, a confusion like the masts of a navy or the spears of an army of image-capped pinnacles biting the impalpable blue, and better than either, the goodliest view of level Lombardy sleeping in its rich transalpine light, and resembling with its white-walled dwellings and the spires on its horizon, a vast green sea spotted with ships. After two months of Switzerland, the Lombard plain is a rich rest to the eye, and the yellow liquid free-flowing light, as if on favoured Italy the vessels of heaven were more widely opened, had for mine a charm which made me think of a great opaque mountain as a blasphemous invasion of the atmospheric spaces. I have mentioned the cathedral first, but the prime treasure of Milan at the present hour is the beautiful, tragical Leonardo. The cathedral is good for another thousand years, but we ask whether our children will find in the most majestic and most luckless of frescoes much more than the shadow of a shadow. Its fame has been for a century or two that, as one may say, of an illustrious invalid whom people visit to see how he lasts, with leave-taking sighs and almost deathbed or tiptoe precautions. The picture needs not another scar or stain now to be the saddest work of art in the world, and battered, defaced, ruined as it is, 
it remains one of the greatest. We may really compare its anguish of decay to the slow, conscious ebb of life in a human organism. The production of the prodigy was a breath from the infinite, and the painter's conception not immeasurably less complex than the scheme, say, of his own mortal constitution. There has been much talk lately of the irony of fate, but I suspect fate was never more ironical than when she led the most scientific, the most calculating of all painters, to spend fifteen long years in building his goodly house upon the sand. And yet, after all, may not the playing of that trick represent but a deeper wisdom, since if the thing enjoyed the immortal health and bloom of a first-rate Titian, we should have lost one of the most pertinent lessons in the history of art. We know it is a hearsay, but here is the plain proof that there is no limit to the amount of stuff an artist may put into his work. Every painter ought once in his life to stand before the cenacolo and decipher its moral. Mix your colours and mess on your palette every particle of the very substance of your soul, and this, lest perchance your prepared surface, shall play you a trick. Then and then only it will fight to the last, it will resist even in death. Raphael was a happier genius. You look at his lovely marriage of the version of the Brera, beautiful as some first deep smile of conscious inspiration, but to feel that he foresaw no complaint against fate, and that he knew the world he wanted to know and charmed it into never giving him away. But I have left no space to speak of the Brera, nor of that paradise of bookworms with an eye for their background, if such creatures exist, the Ambrosian Library, nor of the mighty Basilica of St. Ambrose with its spacious atrium and its crudely solemn mosaics, in which it is surely your own fault, if you don't forget Dr. Strauss and Monsieur Renan, and worship as grimly as a Christian of the ninth century. It is part of the sordid prose of the Montsenis Road that unlike those fine, old, unimproved passes, the Saint-Prin, the Splugin, and yet a while longer, the Saint-Gothard, it denies you a glimpse of that paradise adorned by the four lakes, even as that of uncommented scripture by the rivers of Eden. I made, however, an excursion to the Lake of Como, which, though brief, lasted long enough to suggest to me that I too was a hero of romance with leisure for a love affair, and not a hurrying tourist with a Bradshaw in his pocket. The Lake of Como has figured largely in novels of immoral tendency, being commonly the spot to which inflamed young gentlemen invite the wives of other gentlemen to fly with them and ignore the restrictions of public opinion but even the Lake of Como has been revised and improved. The fondest prejudices yield to time. It gives one somehow a sense of an aspiringly high tone. I shall pay a poor compliment at least to the swarming inmates of the hotels, 
which now alternate attractively by the waterside with villas old and new, were I to read the appearances more cynically. But if it is lost to florid fiction, it still presents its blue bosom to most other refined uses, and the unsophisticated tourist, the American at least, may do any amount of private romancing there. The pretty hotel at Cadnabia offers him, for instance, in the most elegant and assured form, the so often precarious adventure of what he calls at home, summer board. It is all so unreal, so fictitious, so elegant and idle, so framed as to undermine a rigid sense of the chief end of man not being to float forever in an ornamental boat, beneath an awning tasselled like a circus horse, impelled by an affable Giovanni or Antonio from one stately stretch of lake-laved villa steps to another. The departure seems as harsh and unnatural as the dream-dispelling note of some punctual voice at your bedside on a dusky winter morning. Yet I wondered for my own part where I had seen it all before, the pink-walled villas gleaming through their shrubberies of orange and oleander, the mountains shimmering in the hazy light like so many breasts of doves, the constant presence of the melodious Italian voice, where indeed but at the opera, when the manager has been more than usually regardless of expense. Here in the foreground was the palace of the nefarious baritone, with its banqueting hall opening as freely on the stage as a railway buffet on the platform. Beyond, the delightful back scene, with its operatic gamut of colour, and in the middle the scarlet-sashed bacuioli grouped like a chorus, hat in hand, awaiting the conductor's signal. It was better even than being in a novel, this being, this fairly wallowing, in a libretto. End of section 9